Hello, everyone. We're back. It's a brand new season of Get Cynical. Kind of. Yeah, um, season four is a little more research intensive. Uh, it's going to be one of two topics, and I have to interview people and stuff. You know, actually do my job for once. So, in the meantime, to tide you fucking hogs over, we're doing a little mini-season. little mini-season on one of the internet's most powerful men. One of the one of the most powerful men in history. No, it's a mini season on the works of the vlog brother himself, John Green. And uh, Esther, Hannah, you pitched this idea to me. I would have never had this idea if it wasn't for you two. So, why John Green? Why him? Um, I think it was just like he is a guy who is wrapped up in a lot of online culture and discourse in terms of like the stuff that he makes and like and his personality um and is obviously really uh embarrassing in a lot of ways that are funny i think um like his he is very much like a proto McElroy, i think and his brother mm. i know he, he comes you know package deal with his brother as well um, it's always brothers. It's always something brothers. Something about brothers, guys. yeah. Being, yeah. Be, being a brother does something to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have a brother, just fucking grow up. Nobody wants to admit that you could just have a sister or be an only child. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Spencer's latest like inscrutable grudge. Yeah. Yeah. People with uh, brothers are faking it for attention. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Okay. But. Yeah, uh, do you two have any history with John Green? Since I have two, uh, two very funny, well, one funny, one embarrassing story related to him before we dive into these these beautiful boys. No, not really. I mean, like, um, The Faults in Our Stars came out, uh, like, in my senior year of high school. So I think I remember seeing it, like, seeing people around, like, reading it, basically. Um... But, like, it was not something that I was, like, super interested in, in yeah. reading. And I sort of, like, by the time it was really blowing up, I was in college. And it was sort of like, oh, that's like a, you know, teenager book, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, ba and that was his big breakout. And everything after that is, like, it was even more, oh, this is for teenagers. And I was less yeah. and less a teenager. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I, I knew him mostly for, like, the stupid shit that would happen online um when people would make fun of him and stuff and then obviously like the movies and the adaptations that we're going to be talking about but like i had not seen or read a john green thing until this book this is the, my first exposure to like his actual work mm -hmm. mm. um i have my own history with john green uh i've i've been on the john green tip probably longer than uh, either of you uh because if you'll remember for my previous appearances on his podcast, I'm like 50 years old. So when I was a teenager, that was when Looking for Alaska was the last thing that he wrote. And I was dating a girl in high school in my like sophomore, junior year, maybe, who was like really obsessed with Looking for Alaska. And um, I remember being like really intimidated by her in a sense and like thinking that she had good taste in everything because like, she would like listen to Tangerine Dream and stuff. And it was just like, you know, somebody who is clearly making these like efforts to be cultured. And so I remember thinking like, oh, whatever this Looking for Alaska book is, it's probably going to like John, rock my world when I read it. Uh, um, John Green and Tangerine Dream is a very eclectic combination. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would always think it would be like, since this is like 2011, it would be like John Green and Vampire Weekend. But mm -hmm. no, Tangerine Dream, that's a... That's a, that's pulling a little bit more. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like that's what made me because like I was at the time like into you know just a sort of like big name indie rock of like the the mid two thousands, right? It was like mm. I I thought myself somebody at the time the way that like kids do uh, as being like having cool and hip taste because I like knew about the Arcade Fire and stuff like that, and like somebody actually pulling out something like Tangerine Dream just made me think like oh again. This is probably like a really serious book that's gonna like rock my world when I read it. Um, and then like a, a years later, after that relationship ended, like I learned what kind of books like John Green actually wrote, and I was like, oh, so I wasn't like missing out on much in that relationship, was I? <laughs>
Yeah, um... She went so... on to become a Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris staffer and, like, K-Hive Twitter poster, so shout out to her. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Need her in my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, my John Green history is this. I was in high school when a certain phenomenon had its apex known as Crash Course. And we have to talk about Crash Course at some point to go over its many flaws and issues... But um, there were I had many a high school history class where uh, our homework was to watch a crash course video and answer questions from the video. Wow, that's which, pretty fucking <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the that's the private school version of how public schools will show like Elsa baby Spider Man videos on the TV to stop kids from like setting each other on fire. So yeah, I got I got the gentrified version of that. But <laughs> no, it was it was tough i mean at the time i didn't mind since i was a high schooler and it's a youtube video when you're going through the soul crushing monotony of you know a fucking college prep private school eight hours a day plus four hours of homework when you get home you know a youtube video like that's you know that's like candy basically um in hindsight i only like when i started saying things like i watched john green in high school history class did i realize how fucked up that was uh so yeah no i was very well aware of the john green phenomenon we also watched the vlog brothers video on uh the uh war in ukraine that was popping off around that time wonder how that turned out and uh that video was very funny because they got uh eastern and western parts of crimea wrong in the video and they had an annotation correcting it which was pretty pretty dope pretty dope <laughs> <laughs> but um Anyways, uh, the real embarrassing story is that I was in ninth grade when The Fault in Our Stars came out. <laughs> and um, uh, did I read a little bit of the book to get some attention from a non-binary person in the grade? Yes. Uh, <laughs> did it work out for me? No. <laughs> in my defense, I only read two chapters. So... Okay, you read that. some more. Because here's the thing: um, this uh, the 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 same girl that I mentioned uh, that I was dating at the time. Her favorite movie was Adaptation, the Spike Jones movie, and I watched mm. that so I could get with her, and that worked completely. So like, yeah. you know, this is a real two roads to Versity Yellowwood situation. <laughs> yeah, no, th this did not this did not uh, work for me. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have watched worse movies to get action, but you know. It's it's how life goes sometimes. But yeah, no, John yeah. Green, you did not get me any sliz, neck, or dome. So <laughs> that you are on our enemies list for Get Cynical. Uh, but anyways, we're starting this out with his breakout book, The Fault in Our Stars. Now, if you're a fan of both shows, a.k.a. a good person, uh, <laughs> you might uh, have known that we talked about the movie of The Fault in Our Stars on those good old-fashioned values. Now, most of that episode, I think we just made jokes about Make-A-Wish kids. So, you know... I don't think, you know, I don't think there'll be too, too much overlap. And also Ty from the other show has like a blood hatred of John Green. So I don't think me or Andy said much of anything that entire time. <laughs> uh, so uh, if you want to hear the more measured response to this novel slash film, um, and the novel is, you know, I think a little bit better uh, now that I've seen both, which what a fucking thing to say. Uh, you, you'll get a little bit more of a measured response from me. And uh, I'm looking forward to deciphering the mind of John Green. But I went in as cold as I could for this book and stealing myself for the worst, stealing myself that this was going to be a miserable 300-page slog that would make me regret doing this series. I have to break it to you all. Yeah. This book is not that bad. It's... Yeah. It's what it is. You know, it's obviously it's a YA book written by an extremely dorky Redditor. Yeah. And it borrows, you know, it has a lot of really cringeworthy stuff in it. But if you take it on its own terms as a book that is made for fucking 14 year old girls to cry and feel smart about themselves, this is probably like the best version of this possible, basically. Yeah. I I think we're both um we both like agree with that perspective, um, having like me and Esther chatted about it a little bit um during the week. And um I think that like 
What I especially noted is that, like, the mechanics of the plot are perfectly fine. Like, it's not for me, but it's obviously not supposed to be for me, right? Like, as this sort of melodrama for kids, it is perfectly competent at that. It is a perfectly good page turner. There is something new and, like, emotionally hard-hitting that happens every, like, 20 pages. Um, Yeah, it's just, like, it's... You can tell that there is a lot of, like, talent at the specific kind of, like, weaving together a story um, on John Green's part. The part that really just, like, makes me... That made me have a horrible experience reading a book was the dialogue. Um, In a way that I've been just sort of, like, turning around in my head a lot. Because, like, Spencer, from your perspective, how would you describe the dialogue in this book? Um... I think we called the movie a story about falling in love with a Redditor, um, <laughs> the most handsome Redditor in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, what do you even say about the dialogue? It's very, very... Uh, I don't know if it would be right to describe a book written by a 30-something-year-old man like this, but it's precocious, yeah. the best way I can yes. put it. It's, 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 it's um like th- that's how i was kind of like thinking about it right is that like the the peter van houten character um the the like novelist that she's into stands out because it's like he's been isekai'd into a world where everyone is like a precocious 14 year old theater kid yeah he is the he is the best part of that book because like every single character in this book like has the perfect they not only have the perfect quip and remark for the moment, then they also turn around and dissect the remark and its implications. Yeah. And yeah. every single dialogue plays out like this. And then like halfway through the book, this like shambling fat alcoholic just stumbles <laughs> into the book. It's just like, I hate you all. You all fucking suck. I hope you die of cancer twice. I hope the cancer's painful. I love drinking beer and I hate books and I hate you. And it's this very weird, I don't know, like it's, it's again, structurally, it's kind of a testament to how well paced and well designed the book is because it kind of needs to be the inflection point for mm-hmm. the story. Like it needs to be the turnaround that uh, essentially gets, uh, you know, the girl character to let the, the charming Redditor hit it. And it's a very effective, it's a huge tonal swerve that kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's weird to say tonal swerve in a cancer melodrama, but it does like, it feels like a ice bath randomly. And I, I don't know. That is the, by far the strongest part of the book. Yeah. Um, so, so diving into the dialogue a little further, uh, cause like I agree with what you're saying about like the, the strengths and weaknesses of the book. I think yeah. that. It's the way that people talk in this book is that they make these, everything is banter. And it's a very different type of banter than what like people say when they just mean that these days. Because people these days when I talk about that, they're talking about like punch up dialogue. They're talking about MCU stuff. They're talking about like uh, things that like sitcom writer rooms will just like, like that famous like band phrases wall, you know? Um, that's what people mean by banter, but, like, the banter here is, like, really intricate always, and people talk for too long, like, the, they're, they'll just go into these, like, block quotes of dialogue in the course of, like, flirting with each other, or, like, just trying to describe something that they like. Um, and I, I, something that I was talking about with Esther about this is that, like, it is insanely poorly observed as a way that people speak. But it is remarkably well observed as a way that people text. Yeah. It is also a way people want to think they speak. Yes. Especially yes. teenagers. Yeah. It is wish yeah. fulfillment on so many levels of like, oh, I'm so eloquent when I'm on AOL Instant Messenger. Why can't I be like that when the Redditor is in front of me? Yeah. It's like, what? There's I, also. I wait... <laughs> oh, go on, it, Esther. It's just, yeah, it's, it is. Again, we talk about how this book is like not meant for us. It is absolutely meant for the 16-year-old girl who will, like, read this and be like, oh, I wish when I was talking to my crush, I had, you know, the perfect the perfect rejoinder to every funny thing he says, and then yeah. he would look at me and smile and be impressed with me. Um, but as, when you're reading it, and it's like, God, I can't even imagine what this film was like, because, like, reading it, it is impossible to imagine, like, 
people saying these things out loud in sequence because it's just like no people and again it's not like no one talks like this it is like <laughs> unfortunately people do talk like this sometimes. i mean yeah i mean <laughs> but, but 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 that's the thing right like i i think that from what we get a sense of of hazel as a character the the main cancer girl she would talk like this i think that augustus the boy she has a crush on it, he's like four different kinds of guy yeah, because uh, like, yeah. like uh, the the guy who like calls three hundred badass and his favorite book is like a Call of Duty novelization, like he yeah. doesn't talk the exact same way as the girl in this does. Yeah, there's <laughs> G- Gus as a character is like is the biggest problem with the book. Besides, like yeah. the dialogue aside, maybe you can excuse a little a bit being precocious because it's for precocious children. But like Gus as a character is so inconsistently written in mm-hmm. a way that is like it makes the dialogue so much less tolerable because he will go yeah. from being this extremely like erudite and like wise beyond his years and mature beyond his years teenager yeah. um in a way that is like for a YA romance makes perfect sense to being the kid who's like, um, yeah, you got to watch V for Vendetta. Um, and you have to read this book series. That's, you know, an adaptation of Duke Nukem. <laughs> like it just doesn't make <laughs> yeah. any sense. It's very funny. The, in my head, like his fit is he's got the, uh, you know, the cargo shorts, Triforce T fit. But on top of that, he has like a black turtleneck on. <laughs> That's the only way I can make sense of him as a person. Yeah, I, I mean, I, if we're talking about this as like wish fulfillment, then like I think that this is a little darker of a sense of wish fulfillment in that it is. I kind of read it, and it's like it is this like adolescent wish for these like teenage girls that are reading this book to think that they could like fall in love with somebody that isn't just themselves, because like that's kind of just what you're looking for in like your first like teen romances, right? It's like. You're hoping that this person that you, like, project this kind of, like, probably unreasonable crush onto is just yourself secretly deep down. I know that, like, Mm. that's the experience that I've had, uh, you know, when I was, like, having my first crushes. Those are the experiences that, like, some of my friends have, like, talked about where it's like, yeah, I was kind of, like, hoping that we had a little more in common. And it turns out that, like, Gus or... It's weird to call him Gus because Gus is our friend Gus. Augustus <laughs> yeah. um, is this like, he, he is the kid who is uh, on the surface completely different than you and then turns out to just be the exact same person. Yeah. And I think that like, this is, this maybe, and we'll get, I'm excited to get more into what, of this John Green canon, because I feel like this characterization seems like it could be really revealing of like, what his whole deal is just this idea of like you know there's there's a passage um oh, i started early highlights i'm sorry i'm i'm, I'm I, I did some highlights of um some important passages it's when she's so this part a big part of the book is that the main character hazel is obsessed with this novel about this girl's girl who dies of cancer and she's giving it to augustus when they first meet and he says does it feature zombies he asked no i said Stormtroopers? I shook my head. It's not that kind of book. He smiled. I'm going to read this terrible book with the boring title that does not contain Stormtroopers, he promised. And it's like, that Total really... Neck and Triforce team, man. Yeah, that... Neck and Triforce team. It yeah. threw me instantly, because I was like, what is this kid's deal? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why yeah. is, like, this... And again, I think it's like, this it almost feels like aspirational for the kind of nerd that John Green is, right? Because John Green is the guy who'd be like, "Oh yeah, zombies and stormtroopers," but I bet he really wants to be the guy who's like, "I'm gonna give a monologue on like you know the existential uh, tenets of basketball." Like, like yeah, he doesn't my, my uh, what this is making me think of is just like I want to see in other John Green books more mashups of like different kinds of kid. Uh, where it's like, I want yeah. the guy who, like, wears a suit and has a briefcase to, like, high school class every day and, like, greets the teacher by saying, like, good morning, sir. But instead he's like, sup, what's the move? <laughs> <laughs> I, the movie version of Gus, um, I think they kind of, 
they they make him a more coherent person. Uh, I think the book is overall better since what the the book has, and the reason why I was like not too hard on it is the book has the movie doesn't the book has this very has this kind of authentic teenage milieu like it 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 does feel despite all of the like you know horrible dialogue and the wish fulfillment aspects and the like obvious florid melodrama like underneath that it does kind of get the distinct shittiness of being a middle class teenager who's kind of an outcast like yeah just this vague feeling of you know everyone you interact with is nice to you but doesn't actually care about you especially um, like it taking you know, place in a mid-sized city too like it takes place in indianapolis and you know, that's, yeah, that's just like nothing to do. Yeah, it's the same way that like Lady Bird takes place in Sacramento. And it's like the observation there is that like, oh, this place is like just big enough to be like sanded away from any type of like, you know, unique hometown charm. But like, it's just small enough that like, you know, it's it's not a hub of anything interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, no, I, exactly. I, I think that like the best scene in the book for me is the scene where Augustus is talking about his ex-girlfriend who died of brain cancer. And he's talking about how, like, yeah, this tumor on her brain made her, like, an asshole. Like, she would make jokes about my prosthetic leg and just keep laughing at them like she was telling it for the first time, and it made me really uncomfortable. And I didn't like being around her, really, the closer she got to dying, but, like, I couldn't break up with her. And I was reading this, I was like, this is, like, startlingly honest and, like, Mm -hmm. and raw in a way um, that the rest of the book... Most of the rest of the book is not. Um, And I think that, like, in general, when the book is talking about, like, this is what it feels like to be a teenager who's dying of cancer, it does a pretty good job. Like, the precocious stuff is obnoxious, but I think it is able to genuinely pull back a lot of the time and say, like, you know, like, there's a scene near the end when, you know, spoiler alert, when Augustus is, like, really close to death, and he's just fucking crying and talking about, like, I hate this, I don't want to die, like, that, yeah, it, I, 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 that, I felt that, like, that was, that was a moving and, like, or, heartbreaking scene. Or there's another, there's other parts, I mean, and generally when Gus enters, like, palliative care, he's very, you know, he's kind of incoherent, he's sleeping all the time, he's, like, pissing and shitting all over himself, it's, you know, again... For, like, a star-crossed romance with this manic pixie dying dream boy, it, you know, it swerves into these really uncomfortable directions. And some of that really ugly stuff is not in the movie, which is, I think, to its detriment. Like, this Mm. book, again, it captures both the specific shittiness of being a middle-class teenager, the specific shittiness of losing someone you love. It gets that cancer, you know, it's, it's not this great tragedy, and it is not this... You know, there's no nobility in dying to it. It just, you slowly wither away and everyone around you kind of has to pretend it's not happening. Yeah. And uh, it's it's pretty strong when it does that. Uh, I will say in the, I, w- I was about to say this. One thing that the movie does do better than the book is Gus is more coherent because uh, he, they kind of just like turn him into Ansel Elgort basically like he's just a swaggy guy and look I I don't want to say positive things about Ansel Elgort because you know yeah. gesturing mm-hmm. broadly but um he's very good in that movie I he's pretty good in pretty much everything I've seen him in and he is extremely charismatic and charming in it too so yeah. like they managed to find a way to make this uh Make this guy work, but in this book, no, no, he's it's not quite there. He's he's like at once, like he said, he's at once this like uh, you know, oh, he's your himbo boyfriend. I mean, this predates that wretched term, but you know, mm-hmm. it, he's very much the prototype. But then he also has like uh, untold wells of knowledge, and he's willing to, you know, dissect everything that he does and says, and engage in philosophical conversation. He does all of this like grand romantic gestures for you. You can't have it both ways, okay? You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Um I I I think to like to build a little on what Esther was just saying about the the ways in which like this book zags when you expect it to zig and like is a little more like honest and ugly about certain things than you might give it credit for. I I think as well that like the book has like an oddly misplaced sense i think of when it's like calling attention to that and i i 
I like it because it kind of strictly partitions the good moments from the bad ones. But, like, Hazel spends so much time in her narration being like, this isn't your typical cancer book. Things are going to happen here that you might not expect, and we're going to subvert all the cancer cliches. And, like, I mean, for a lot of the book, like, she is just kind of following along with them, right? Like, it, it, it isn't as kind of just, like, playing with the form as it thinks it is, and it is still, like, a sappy melodrama in the way that, like, yeah, it ought to be, right? Nothing against it for being a sappy melodrama. But then, like, it'll say, it'll have those, like, moments, like Esther was mentioning, where it gets sort of uh, unexpectedly honest and bleak. Um, And those are always, like, far away from these, like, monologues that she gives about how, like, oh, I'm sorry, did you expect me to be a typical cancer book protagonist? (laughs) (laughs) And it's just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, like, again, it... The reason why I don't mind that as much as I would otherwise is because, like, it at least lets those, like, really good parts breathe. Um, I think that there's, like, the one place that it kind of merges those a little bit, and I think this scene works, like, fairly well as well, is that, um, like, right before he's put into palliative care, um, Gus, like, calls Hazel up in, like, the middle of the night and is, like, begging her to, like, come help him at a gas station Because he's, like, tried to go out and, like, get cigarettes, like, uh, for himself, like, way after that's, like, a remotely healthy thing for him to do. Um, And he's just, like, completely, like, physically breaking down at the gas station and, like, needs help. But he's also like, oh, but I I don't want to, like, go to a hospital because if I go there, I'm never going to come out. And I, I think that that is, like, probably the moment that is, like, subverting the cancer novel structure that it kind of calls the most attention to itself, but it still works, right? Like, it yeah. feels like this realistic moment of, like, what this, this like, dumbass kid would do as, like, thinking that this could be his final swaggy moment. Um, and I, I I appreciate that, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a passage that's very telling of how desperate the book is to subvert itself that I highlighted. Um, and it's at once a really... It is kind of a moving it is kind of moving in a vacuum because it again is one of the raw it's it's a rare moment where like the raw aspects and the more annoying aspects of the book kind of congeal i just wanted to read it in whole according to the conventions of the genre augustus waters kept his sense of humor till the end did not for a moment waver in his courage and his spirit soared like an indomitable eagle until the world itself could not contain his joyous soul but this was the truth, a pitiful boy who desperately wanted not to be pitiful, screaming and crying, poisoned by an infected G-tube that kept him alive, but not alive enough. It, uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the essential contradiction of the <laughs> book right there. It's like it wants, to, it wants to swerve away from, you know, these traditional stories and these traditional narratives we have about kids with cancer and it does but in trying to get so far away with so far away from that it kind of 360s all the way back to being kind of uh you know cliched and annoying yeah i also but- want to go back to the dialogue uh because <laughs> something about the dialogue that really stuck out to me is very funny is there's like i would say that maybe like 5% of this by volume is tumblr speak and I don't mm-hmm. want to say the reason why I took a took such a low number is because huge passages of this book are overwritten and obnoxious in you know that bantery way, but they are not the specific type of Tumblr speak I am thinking of. But ever so often, ever so often, just in case you're forgetting that John Green wrote this, you'll get a random, you'll get a stray awesome sauce floating around somewhere <laughs> in here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, the, um, the 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 really good scene that we were describing where like. Um, Van Houten uh, just like yells at the kids and is like fuck you you come here and like expect me to like tell you stuff about my story and like make things up for you because it's like your make a wish and like I don't give a fuck like you're gonna die and like I won't care Um, I think Hazel calls him douche pants yep (laughs) it's literally listen douche pants yeah (laughs) Yeah. I mean the thing that I think like really uh, makes this made this clear to me is how much like caps lock there is in this book. There's yes. so many <laughs> in dialogue and in prose. 
of just like all caps phrases in a way that is like it so just resembles a, a post online and it's like the whole book is a big post um and, and i think that that is really telling about like just about the writing style and like the milieu you're supposed to be uh, uh placing this book in in mentally like like hannah said this doesn't sound like how people talk in real life but if you were reading this on you know ao3 or something yeah it would it's fit. very fan fiction yeah it, it feels like yeah. it feels like like the the tragic i uh you know au fanfic of a different series that doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> like these these are the two main characters from like the call of duty knockoff yeah. that <laughs> gus is obsessed yeah. with there's there's a there's a in in some other universe there's a ya book that's called like you know the sword of uh, yeah. golden fire, and this is the fanfic about if the the princess and the knight from that book had yeah. cancer, <gasps> and 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 Gus is like the protagonist because it's like everyone in my world is sorted into five categories: redditor, art student, <laughs> roller backpack kid, and I'm the only one who could be two or more. Yeah. Um. I want to, uh, okay, so for starters, there's a passage I want to read in full in a little bit. It's a pretty long one that has, again, we're hitting all the marks. It's got caps lock. It's got, uh, you know, it's got self, it's overwritten. It's got the self-analytical thing. And yet it does have a certain something there that I can't makes me not want to dismiss the book. But first, first we have to talk about an imperial affliction. Yeah. So if you're not familiar uh, with the structure of this book, um, you know, the girl who's dying of cancer, her favorite book is this book called An Imperial Affliction, which, as we mentioned before, uh, has a protagonist where the female character is dying from cancer. And, uh, you know, Hazel really loves this book because she thinks it's the only one that's honest about uh, what it's like to die. And uh, she, you know, a huge part of this book is her tracking down the reclusive writer of it and trying to figure out what happens at the end of the book. Because at the end of the book, you know, it doesn't end. There's no, like, punctuation that just cuts off in the middle of a sentence because you just die that way. I know. Which, on the one hand, that's a pretty that's pretty smart because that is the type of, like, faux-clever, faux-deep book that a teenage girl would really, really, really enjoy. And I'm not saying I'm better than that, but I am saying that is true. But the other thing is, is that I never want to hear a fucking complaint about Charlie Kaufman again in my entire life because <laughs> I read this book and John Green can't go three fucking pages without putting a fake passage from this goddamn cancer book in the middle of it. Yeah, it's um, and every it's it's weird because all the passages from an imperial affliction that are in this book are so bad. Like the writing <laughs> yeah. is terrible, but it's terrible in a different way than John Green is bad. And that's the craziest thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm going to see if I can find a passage of Imperial Affliction to see if I can get you all, uh, give you all an idea of how. Okay, here's one. Uh, <laughs> here's a line that Gus says. Yeah, he said quietly. I believe in that line from an, appear an Imperial Affliction. And then here's the, <laughs> here's the line. The risen sun too bright in her losing eyes. It's just <laughs> one line. But... <laughs> <laughs> the risen sun too bright in her losing eyes. Yeah, like <laughs> I her get, eyes I, fell off, taking bleed damage. <laughs> I I get that it's hard as a writer to be like, all right, I have to have an in fiction book that is insanely good. Um, how how do I do that? And John Green's answer is to like go all in on like the most flowery, like faux poetic language you could imagine. Uh, and, and it just, it's, yeah. it, it, I think, it, I think the book suffers for like, I, like there shouldn't have been any quotes from the, from the book. I would have told John Green, cut all that because every time they quote from the book, they make themselves seem stupider for liking it. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, the, the line that they keep reiterating from the book that becomes a theme of the book itself is that pain demands to be felt. And this fucking motherfucker thinks he's so goddamn clever for having, you know, the the arc words of his book be from a book within the book. You <laughs> fucking asshole. Which I, you fucking piece of shit. Okay, a, a couple things here, because I'm 100% on board with this. Um, I I think that, like, the way that um, he leans so hard on this book being great and constantly tries to convince you that, like, the individual passages from it are great, 
is especially funny because like the book's title is taken from Shakespeare and that is a beautiful piece of prose. Like the the phrase the fault in our stars like notably it stands out from every other book title that John Green has ever written, right? Cuz these these all tend to be like very uh, like either precious or just very kind of like bland things. And the fault in our stars yeah. is the one that like sort of stands out as just like, oh, that's a really poetic turn of phrase. Um, yeah, all the others are like flaming lips titles, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's it's like, and yeah, you, you clearly didn't have like the the confidence in these imperial affliction quotes to name your book after it, right? Because it's like, oh, everything in the book is a quote from an imperial affliction, except for the title of the book, where you were like, why don't I lead on somebody who could actually like write these really beautiful turns of phrase? Um, um, I also, I just remembered the epigraph in the book is from a, an imperial affliction, which is also such a fucking dick move. That's yeah. so but annoying. The, uh, here's the passage that he goes with. Um, and this is like quoted verbatim. It's supposed to be from an imperial affliction. As the tide washed in, the Dutch tulip man faced the ocean. Conjoinder, rejoinder, poisoner, concealer, revelator. Look at it rising up and rising down, taking and taking everything with it. What's that? I asked. Water, the Dutchman said. Well and time. Man. It Not insists great. upon itself. What it can I say? Yeah. <laughs> okay, it does insist upon itself. Though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I have a little passage uh, that is not a direct quote from an imperial affliction, but it is about the book that just made me go like, wait, what the fuck are you talking about, John Green? So when she's showing up to meet uh, Bellhouse Van Houten, she uh, is wearing a shirt with the um, Rene Magritte, this is not a pipe uh, image on it. And like her mom, it says here, I just don't get that shirt, mom said. Uh, Peter Van Houten will get it. Trust me. There are like 7,000 Magritte references in an Imperial Affliction. It's like, how? 7,000? Are they all to the pipe? <laughs> they're all... No, there's the great scene in an Imperial Affliction where it's like, and then they met the man whose face was an apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. should have had the book like uh, they should have had the passage be written like Cormac McCarthy, and it's all just like no punctuation, talking about a baby getting eaten by a boar. <laughs> yeah. And then the damn creature washed away the baby's sins and purged it in blood, and then the baby yelped and screamed. But for it was the last time the baby was ever to yelp and scream because it was torn asunder, be cleft by the boar creature. <laughs> that's, that's the book really in love with. <laughs> You're just talking about how, like, this one passage, like, really, like, uh, stuck out to me. And it's just, like, a, a half-page description of a cowboy breakfast that just lists individual <laughs> items. <laughs> he had eggs and toast and hash browns and... They should have they should have just put George R. R. Martin in this book and like made him the douchebag author and when they go to meet him he's just like trying to get them to eat a bunch of food and not talking about anything. <laughs> like I made pigeon pie or whatever and it's just like shut up you fat piece of shit. Yeah. Um the one joke I think in the book that like landed for me was uh one of the things that Van Houten does cuz he's just like uh they show up to basically ask him like hey, what happens after the book ends, right? Because, like, you know, the big gimmick of the book is that it ends mid-sentence, and it's like, oh, well, that's because, like, the main character is dying of cancer. She either, like, dies outright or gets too sick to keep writing the story. Um, but, like, Hazel's obsessed with this idea of, like, okay, well, what happens to the other characters, right? Like, they don't all die. Like, I need some type of closure. And Van Houten just keeps sort of, like, blowing them off and, like... uh talking about something different when they ask him. And one of the things that he's talking about is like, are you guys into Swedish hip hop? And yeah. I remember seeing like the, the clip of that in the movie and that's not great. Right. But like, I think that the thing that kind of makes it work for me in the book is that there's just like repeated mentions in Hazel's narration to just being like, I need to stress this just sounded like normal rap. <laughs> I, I love the idea of her just being like, I I don't get it. Like, <laughs> I don't have either like a um like a really clever precocious rejoinder to this, or like a really sort of like neatly despairing way of not getting it. It's just like I I don't get what you're trying to do here. I'm sorry. 
yeah it is it is objectively really funny to just have this like star-crossed romance novel about these teenagers who are so eloquent and perfect and then you randomly just put them in the alfred molina scene from boogie nights for like five <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. leave after that <laughs> um i have a passage i'd like to read um because i think it pretty well sort of uh, gets at Gus as a character and the way that they talk in this book, which we've been talking about, but which we have not really shown an example of. This is... Yeah, uh, I have a good example, too. Is it so, the one with the, the word adjectival in it? It is not. Oh, fuck. We need to read that we one, should, We will bring that one up, because that passage is crazy. Um, no. I want to is... be nice to this book, but then I'll remember something like adjectival, and then I'll be like, all right. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll get to adjectival. That's coming up. This is, one, this is when... Gus and Hazel first meet. He says this. He's talking about um, why he stopped playing basketball. Oh, fuck off. He says, I was all about resurrecting the lost art of the mid-range jumper. But then one day I was shooting free throws, just standing at the foul line at the North Central gym, shooting from a rack of balls. All at once, I couldn't figure out why I was methodically tossing a spherical object through a toroidal object. It seemed like the stupidest thing I could possibly be doing. I started thinking about little kids putting a cylindrical peg through a circular hole and how they do it over and over again for months when they figure it out and how basketball was basically just a slightly more aerobic version of that same exercise. Anyway, for the longest time, I just kept sinking free throws. I hit 80 in a row, my all-time best, but as I kept going, I felt more and more like a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, universe. This book would be better if he got better at, like, if he was his cancer was cured, but then he would not too good at hooping to ha- spend any time with Hazel and he just became <laughs> hitting he 80 free throws in a nuggets. row is crazy yeah to be clear yeah. <laughs> fucking Larry Bird over here god damn yeah, I, I, I want uh, as he's doing that for like his friend uh, like the other cancer kid who goes blind to just be like on the sidelines going like he's on fire <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah oh baby <laughs> I know his friend isn't blind at this point, but it would be funny if, like, Gus just lied about this. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah, I just hit 80 free throws in a row, and it's like, man, you're on fire. And I'm like, he yeah, was just, yeah, totally. He was just standing, like, on, on a ladder next to the hoop, just dropping the ball in, and the guy, the kid is just here, he's like, wow, swish after swish. <laughs> I, I love that they have, like, a text adventure version of their Call of Duty game to play after yeah, that was so the friend weird. goes blind. What the fuck is yeah, that? Yeah, they're playing their, like, Call of Duty Duke Nukem game after he goes blind, and he's, like, dictating his moves to the computer, but not in a way that, like, there are accessibility options of, like, you know, that you can use voice to control it. But he's doing it, like, he's telling the computer, like, like, go into that building. <laughs> like... I, what game is this? It's so strange. Yeah. It's so I I love his like loose understanding of what like these video games are because like it's a single player co op shooter that's also like a text adventure and like it's called The Price of Dawn, which like kind of makes me think that it would be like one of these like sort of grasping towards prestige things like The Last of Us. But then, like, the main character of it is named, like, Staff Sergeant Max Mayhem. And again, like, it it makes sense that it's Gus's favorite game, right? Because it, it's five different types of games. Game. Yeah. This is probably a better game than The Last of Us. Yeah. <laughs> I actually haven't played The Last of Us. It just looks unbearably bad. So I just want to be a hater. Esther loves every AAA video game. <laughs> uh, what's the verdict on The Last of Us, Esther? The Last of Us is all right. For all right. what it is. You know. There you go. Yeah. Second one, also all right. The Last of Us, you heard it here. It is the fault in our stars of video games. It is the fault in our stars of video games. That's undeniable. Okay. Um, I'm I... just imagining Gus. You know how you can set it up so you can play Dark Souls using like voice commands and people beat the game doing that? Yeah. yeah. I'm imagining like him doing that, but he's like the daredevil of it. Like, after, <laughs> you know, after Isaac goes blind, he's just like, you know, full tilt. Neo and Matrix uh, Revolutions just fully <laughs> ascended, able to no-hit the game perfectly. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I want it to be like, you know, um, it, it's like the last day that he's out of the hospital. Um, he just like uh, is, is wheeled into... Um, like the basketball court and just like is hitting these like cross court shots from 90 feet, <laughs> just like <laughs> reclining on the opposite corner of the court. 
<laughs> just be like, oh, I can yeah. do this now? That's yeah. cool. There's a scene in the book where they talk about, like, uh, Gus's last good day before he dies. And I think on that day, he should have been, like, he went back to his high school basketball team and he put up, like, 90 points. He does the uh, Aaron Carter versus, or Nick Carter versus Shaq game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they should have. They should have let him play. <laughs> they should have let him play at an NBA game as like his make a wish, and he's just fucking like outplaying all of the best players. <laughs> he's doing like a Kobe eighty point game in a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at one point, by the way, he's wearing a Rick Smiths jersey. Uh, and fun fact: in his second season, Rick Smiths uh, led the league in personal fouls committed. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so cool if that's the type of player that he was before he got like yeah. he he was done with basketball. He was just like the most d- dirty player ever. <laughs> just like <laughs> he's the enforcer that like his coach is just like all right, that's their star. He's gonna be a five star recruit. He's gonna go to uh, he's gonna get like scholarship offers from Duke. I want you to to take out his legs all game. <laughs> Um, so, okay, we have one more passage that I would, uh, love to read, because I, I, if we're talking about the dialogue being really, like, um, just unbearable in a lot of ways, this is it. Um, so they're talking about a, like, they're doing banter about, like, a shitty swing set that, um, is at, like, Hazel's house, and they're being like, oh, we need to put this on Craigslist, because, like, it it just looks really sad here. And like, maybe it can be like used by someone else. Um, and so they're like talking about, you know, what to write for this, this headline. And uh, he says, uh, headline, he asked, swing set needs, ho- swing set needs home. I said, desperately lonely swing set needs loving home. He said, lonely, vaguely pedophilic swing set seeks to butts of children. I said, he laughed. That's why, what? That's why I like you. Do you realize how rare it is to come across a hot girl who creates an adjectival version of the word pedophile? You are so busy being you that you have no idea how utterly unprecedented you are. I have a skewed view of, you know, the demographic of women I hang out with is a little not the same as I'm sure a lot of people. But uh, most of them don't have any trouble finding a way to you put the word pedophilic in a conversation. I think... uh, think it's a very go-to dark joke for people so i i I don't know this isn't quite as impressive just a a quick digression here uh my husband is uh making some tea i think and just overheard that and like he has the most pained expression i've seen him have in a long time on his face right now yeah Yeah. (laughs) that that clearly he was not prepared to overhear that that is, that yeah, is what yeah, get the, over here yeah. get over here we're gonna read you we're gonna read you the fucking um uh, metaphor scene next since that's the one i want to read <laughs> uh no that actually yeah i was gonna say that the um the the pedophile swig set is the lowest moment of their like uh dialogue exchange but i actually think the lowest moment is definitely what you're about to read because... yeah i think the f- yeah, when I, I was reading this the first time like i let out this sound that was just like gas escaping from a corpse <laughs> I mean, with this scene, I think the reason why you want to, why I want to read this scene is because it's terrible and it's annoying and it's bad in all the ways we've done. And yet I get it. Like it's bad in a way that I totally get why, you know, a hundred, like a million 15 year old girls were just like, oh my God, this is the hottest thing I've ever seen. Like I, 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 I get it. I get why this book was so popular. So yeah, there's the metaphor scene. So in this scene, uh, Isaac and um, his girlfriend are making out in the parking lot, and uh, you know they're they're really going at it. Which, by the way, naming your blind character Isaac. Is, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's top notch, man. That's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> what was the other biblical reference? Too fucking obvious. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, was was uh, naming him like was naming him Eddie too much? Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. Uh, I'll anyways, make sure to look up uh, what that's a reference to later. <laughs> Oedipus. Oedipus. Okay. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Sure. Yeah. Ed- I should have said Eddie with an O. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, joke would have landed in that case. You fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. How? Okay. Okay. How? Uh, uh, a really sw- if Gus was a really swaggy Greek guy named Eddie with an O, I think this book would be like an instant <laughs> classic for me. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
So, uh, Hazel Grace says, uh, I think he's hurting her boob, I said. Yes, it's difficult to ascertain whether he is trying to arouse her or perform a breast exam. Then Augustus Waters reached into a pocket and pulled out, of all things, a pack of cigarettes. He flipped it open and put a cigarette between his lips. Are you serious? I asked. You think that's cool? Oh my god, you just ruined the whole thing. Which whole thing? He asked, turning to me. The cigarette dangled unlit from the unsmiling corner of his mouth. The whole thing where a boy who is not unattractive or unintelligent or seemingly in any way unacceptable stares at me and points out incorrect uses of literally and compares me to actresses and asks me to watch a movie at his house. But of course there is a Hamarsha and yours is, oh my God, even though you had freaking cancer, all caps, you give money to a company in exchange for the chance to acquire yet more cancer, all caps. Oh my God. Let me just assure you that not being able to breathe sucks. All caps again. Totally disappointing. Totally. I um, Being hung up on people using the word literally wrong, that's a classic, like, 2014, like, Reddit guy move. Yeah, um, absolutely. One of the most but, but, but it's, one it's of the also most... the theater girl move, right? Like, it, that, that's yeah. the one area where, like, the two halves meet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a Hamarsha, he asked, the cigarette still in his mouth. It tightened his jaw. He had a hell of a jawline, unfortunately. A fatal flaw, I explained, turning away from him. I stepped toward the curb, leaving Augustus Waters behind me. Then I heard a car start down the street. It was Mom. She had been waiting for me, like, for me to, like, make friends or whatever. Make friends or whatever. Okay. I felt this weird mix of disappointment and anger welling up inside me. I don't even know what the feeling was, really, just that there was a lot of it, and I wanted to smack Augustus Waters and also replace my lungs with lungs that didn't suck at being lungs. I was standing with my Chuck Taylors on the very edge of the curb, the oxygen tank ball and chaining in the cart by my side, and right as my mom pulled up, I felt a hand grab mine. I yanked my hand free, but then turned back to him. They don't kill you unless you light them, he said as mom arrived at the curb. And I've never lit one. It's a metaphor, see? You put the killing thing right between your teeth, but you don't give it the power to do its killing. It's a metaphor, I said, dubious. Mom was just idling. It's a metaphor, he said. You choose your behaviors based on meta their metaphorical reson resonances, I said. <laughs> oh, yes, he smiled. The big, goofy, real smile. I'm a big believer in metaphor, Hazel Grace. The rem reminder that this kid's favorite book is um, is Duke Nukem. Yeah, <laughs> the adaptation. Yeah, it would be it would be cooler if he just started. He was hot and charming and cool, and then he just lit up a cigarette in her face, and she got mad. And was like, "Yeah, cigarettes are awesome, though." Is the thing. He just like cigarettes he, are bad. He takes her back to his house and just like shows her live leak video. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you 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 want to see my uh, favorite video? Uh, three hours cartel execution. <laughs> no, uh, no adrenaline. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, this this whole there's one last thing that I wanted to like point out regarding the dialogue, and I, I think that like the last couple passages that we've read, um, especially like the adjectival pedophilic one uh, have been like a really good illustration of it. but also the this one is that like hazel will act basically like wow i have never met a boy like this who has this this way with words and we are just constantly just going back and forth with this like crackling wit and it's like no you have everyone in your world talks like that like, you have conversations that are indistinguishable from the ones that you have with Augustus, with, like, every other character in this book. Um, like, your back and forth with Isaac is the same. Your back and forth with your own dad is the same. <laughs> like, th the same way that, um, like, Augustus will, like, insistently call her Hazel Grace and not just Hazel. Um, like... Augustus that's a really dad. funny thing yeah that's not a romantic gesture that's what you do to your kid when he like broke something yeah He's like hazel grace get down here this instant yeah yeah <laughs> and like when she meets his dad um like his dad starts calling her hazel grace because he's heard his son say that and she says oh Ew. no it's just hazel and then for the rest of the book he will insistently call her just hazel and it's like no that's the same that's the same bit 
Like, you could be just as attracted to, like, his dad for the same reasons. Yeah. And it's, like, the, the thing that, like, kept making me... This would me be a cooler cool. book if he was attracted to her dad. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that, like, kept making me laugh is how just, like, sh- her narration will constantly just punctuate after these, like, repartees that they have. Uh, she'll just say, like, uh, uh, in the narration, like, God, Augustus, you are so sexy. Um, But again, like, she has the same dialogue exchanges with everyone. So I'm just imagining, like... Um, she's just had that type of banter with her own dad, and then she just, like, interrupts that to say, like, God, dad, you are so sexy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is the classic, like, this brand of writer problem, right? Of, like, it's the Whedon thing, where Mm -hmm. if you take the names off the characters and you don't know who the fuck's talking. Yeah. Um, And it's it's understandable, because, like, if you found a way of writing dialogue that, like, people react to very well, and, like, as much as we're giving a style of dialogue shit, like, it is gonna fucking hit with its intended audience. Um, So so if you found that voice that is going to, like, work really well, then, like, why find a second voice? But I think the mistake is in making it, in giving it to the adults in the story, too right like yeah that is the that is the the achilles heel i think like and this they, would work he so almost much... avoids it he almost, he almost does. avoids it because the main adult in this story is you know not does not talk like this he talks like a drunken asshole yeah, yeah. although he has his own precocious uh ticks i think uh, he he yeah. definitely has the like verboseness that is like you know, a room temperature person's idea of what a genius would talk like. Yeah. But, like, I, I think that, that that even that works because it's, like, it's very clear that, like, this is a guy who is just, like, broken by a lot of stuff in his life and, like, really bitter and sort of, like, has nothing except for talking in long sentences to, like, yep. keep himself this entertained. Is, this book is a cautionary tale about why you should never meet Abel Ferrara, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Uh, oh man. Look, I know we ripped on this book a lot, but like I get why it got so popular and frankly, I don't even think it didn't deserve to get so popular like mm-hmm. as far as YA goes, like especially now that like YA has really seeped its way into like creative writing and like, you know, writing in li- literature and publishing programs across the country, like this is I mean in one in some ways it might you could call it patient zero, but if you compare it to some of the shit that's being pumped out now, like it's fine. It's harmless. You show this to a fucking 13 year old. I think the worst thing that happens is that they talk like this shit for a couple of weeks. Like yeah. this is an actively detrimental in the way that a lot of YA lit is. And I think honestly, you know, teenagers need their fucking sappy melodramas too. You know, they need, they need to be able to feel those big emotions. They deserve that yeah. too. And I, this know, is I, a good book for them. Yeah, the thing is, like, I think it would be easier to be really mean to this book if it was a Harry Potter situation and there were a lot of, like, 38-year-olds <laughs> who were, like, still obsessed yeah. with the fault in our stars. But I don't think those people exist. I think this is a book that you yeah. read when you're yeah. 14, 15, 16, and then you grow and you love it because that's who it's for, and then you grow out of it. And, like, there's nothing wrong with that. There should be books for teenagers that are, like, okay. You know, this is, this is hardly be- like an evil book. Yeah, th- th- this is this would be it would be so cool if we had like adult Avatar: The Last Airbender fans, but for this book, and you have like thirty-nine-year-olds <laughs> walking around with unlit cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> They're just singing the Charlie XCX song from the movie. <laughs> yeah. The movie, okay. Big ups to the book. The book does not have the movie's fucking soundtrack, and that Charlie XCX song is the one part of it that isn't the most spine-crawlingly repulsive fake indie rock in the world. So. I listened to music I actually liked while reading this book, and it improved the process <laughs> immeasurably. But does the movie have the scene where they kiss at the Anne Frank house that everyone applauds? <laughs> yes, it does. See, the oh thing. yes, it does. I was waiting for that scene because I had heard about it for years, and like the scene itself is fine, and even them like kissing at that point, I think is fine, and like is. It's kind of funny, honestly. I mean, it's it's funny, but like, it is not like ludicrous. But then was like, when it gets to the part where it's like, yeah, we stopped making out and turned around, and all the adults were staring at us, and then they all started to clap and cheer. It's like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? No, it would be much funnier if they kissed and they had this really nice moment at the Anne Frank house, and then all of a sudden everyone's like, "Come on, you guys, seriously." They're like, "You kids need to get the fuck out. You are disrespecting the Holocaust." 
Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I I just learned why the film's soundtrack is that bad. It's um, it was uh, or, or no, this is the score. It was scored by two members of Bright Eyes who aren't <gasps> even Connor Oberst. <laughs> That is the most, like, we are at the bottom of the barrel, like, decision that you could make in that regard. Oh, my God. Um, Okay, one thing, uh, while we're talking about, like, inspirations. um, So, An Imperial Affliction. uh, John Green has said that it is inspired by two books primarily. One of them is called uh, The Blood of the Lamb by a, like, author and theologian... um, named peter de vries um and obviously there's that dutch connection there and whatnot but like it, it a generally more like obscure thing and then the other book that imperial fiction is supposed to be inspired by is infinite jest what let's go <laughs> because it's yeah <laughs> i have no idea what is the connection i have no idea i'm gonna click through and see if i could get anything out of this yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I've never as, read Infinite Jest, so as I described, can't... an imperial affliction is like comes across as a very austere, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a very austere tragedy, basically about like you know people who are sick and dying and don't have enough money and meet people and get betrayed. Like, it does not, it does not come across as like postmodern except in the way that it ends i guess is maybe that's yeah. what he's talking about no he says quote most of the references hazel and augustus make to an imperial affliction are related in some way to something from infinite jest and i wanted readers of infinite jest to be able to make those connections now, all the readers of infinite jest who are picking up the, the <laughs> novel for 15 year old girls being like oh hey th- there's some stuff about that other book in here <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is one really really annoying but really really intelligent girl who cries when she gets a minuses who was going insane for that shit (laughs) one one exact girl you've had to have a group project with and you get texts from at 1 30 in the morning she is in feeling her fucking self with this she is this is her moment right now wait no it's um it was my high school girlfriend that's true Wait, okay, so yeah, so wait, no, it makes That's sense. her, yeah. No, actually, we, we figured this out. <laughs> That's okay, who it's yeah. for, holy I shit. I still think it would have been better if it was Blood Meridian, you know. Yeah. I still think it been better. <laughs> and then the damn kid with cancer down croaked, and then he saw the blood trickle out of his veins, and then through them veins, the blood of a thousand gods and voices came streaming out, and then he passed on to the spirit world where there was no god. Uh. All right, so that's going to do it. That's going to do it. Uh, folks, I hope you all enjoy the season. Uh, we're doing another bonus. Actually, next week, we're probably going to do an Andy episode on one of Esther's favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And then week after that, we're going back into John Greenville. So hope you all have Wait. fun with this for the next few months. Before before we sign off, I just have uh, one little uh, Fault in Our sl- Star slash Corvac O'Carthy riff, which is um, mm. before uh, Douche Pants existed... Uh, cloud fuckery awaited it the perfect <laughs> practitioner for the perfect <laughs> trade <laughs> yeah. all right bye 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 two one two three four